Hi all, welcome to Addiction to Recovery. Our purpose and passion is to bring you not only the science of addiction, but also the patient perspective and the relationship between the two. Okay, we can start talking now. <laughs> oh, episode three. Episode three. Wow. So we were supposed to air this earlier today, but here we are. It's all right. Yeah, life happens. Life, life happens. First of all, I mean, we've had really good feedback. We have had feedback. Good feedback. Thank you, everybody. Yeah. And just so y'all aware, we do have a Facebook page now. So please go find it and like it and follow us. Because not only will I, of course, like throw... I, I say I, I'm sorry, we. We. It's connected to your Facebook because I don't even have one right now. Um, put on updates with the... the what, your volume's too loud? No. I'll just turn your headphones down. Sorry, I talk loudly. Um, so not only will we put up the, the episodes as they release, so then maybe eventually we'll get on schedule, but also just different. I think if we can make it a, a community, like of resources and things, you know, just like motivational things. Like today I actually did just post about the Mount Everest analogy. Yeah, I mean, we'll <laughs> we'll use that many times. But I think that for me... As a person in recovery, I've talked to a lot of people about where my life is now. And, you know, I think that the one thing that I feel obligated to do in, in my recovery is to give back. Because I think that I have went through such a journey that I, I just don't feel like it can be for nothing. It, it really has made an impact on me on what I'm supposed to do in my life. And I honestly think that this podcast is really going to help people. I mm -hmm. hope that, that, I mean, that's why we started it. It was, there was no other reason we started it other than to help people because we feel both of us have some insight. And, <laughs> and we, I think that we didn't want to just hear ourselves talk. No. And, <laughs> and, and to, to actually have a few episodes out there and then to get the feedback we've gotten, I think it really makes me more energized to do this. And I'm very excited to make a difference. And that's, that's what this is all about. So I totally agree. So if, totally anybody, agree. if anybody has any, like we said last time, if anybody has any suggestions or, or uh, questions or, or topics you'd like to see covered, I mean, that's what we're here for. Exactly. We're not here for ourselves. We're here for the families, the friends, the people in substance use disorder, um, anybody that needs some help. That's what we're here for. Or somebody who drives a long way to work. No. Yeah. <laughs> or at least 30 minutes. And there you go. Uh, so yeah, I, the email address will, I'll say it right now and then we'll say it again at the end, but otherwise you can just find it on Facebook and you can follow us there. If you have questions or comments, you can write it there, a message. So the email is addiction to the number two recovery podcast at gmail.com. And the yeah. Facebook is addiction to recovery. Yes. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to oh my gosh it's not early in the morning it's late no. and my brain does not function late i am a morning person <laughs> you are not no that's true <laughs> okay so you know we kind of in the first two episodes talked a little bit about one your story to just kind of intro what addiction is and we kind of alluded to a lot of upcoming podcasts so i think we should start trying to remember what they were and go from there and um so let's start before we start bringing in guest speakers which I am super excited for us to do because I think that'll just add to it. Let's talk about your story first. Which one? 
<laughs> let's start at the beginning. Not not the beginning, like you were born and whatever. Let's talk about when when this journey kind of started. Let's skip, you know, the high school party days for now. Okay. And just because I think that can that can something that can come later on. But let's talk about the opioids. Okay. So when I was a when I was a teacher and a hockey coach, and uh, you know, kind of at the peak of my life. <laughs> what twenty six? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my god, I'm just uh, kidding. Yeah, but isn't that uh, how every was, twenty year old thinks? Yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. it, in this instant, it does feel like that was that was where I had started to achieve everything that I'd want wanted. You know, I was married. I I had a full time teaching job. I was teaching social studies, which was a, the an, worst um, subject you know, of mine greatest, ever. Greatest subject ever. <laughs> um, economics and social and uh, history, which. Um, you know, doesn't sound that exciting, but for me, it really was. And I enjoyed my job. I loved my job. But on top of that, I was a hockey coach, which that was my dream was to become a high school hockey coach. And I had achieved that. And not only had I achieved that, but the first year I was there, we were really good. I mean, like it was one of, it was the best team in the school's history. Um, we made it very far in the playoffs, one game away from the state tournament. And, you know, I was riding a high and, um, (laughs) Yeah, nice verbiage. Right. Oh my gosh. Um, but even at that point, my drinking had, had really slowed down. I was very dedicated to my job. I was dedicated to my marriage. Um, life was very good. And uh, I was, this is a funny story. This, this is how my whole addiction started. I oh, was, this is, don't crash your car when you hear how no, ridiculous this, this is, is. This is very ridiculous. I was teaching and um, I had to sneeze. I and, wish I had a sneeze button. Yeah. And I tend to look like a party favor if I look, let that thing go, you oh know, and it's, it's just a very big production. And so, I mean, I got a class of seniors that I didn't want to, like, make a big deal out of it. So I tried to hold my sneeze back. And it was a rather, you know, big sneeze. And I, you know, held it back, and I popped a disc in my neck. <laughs> Wait. Yeah. There. So I used the button appropriately. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, no jokes aside, I did really herniate a disc in my neck sneezing. And um, it was very painful. And I, you know, didn't go in at first, but I ended up going in, explained the situation. I could barely move my neck and it was, it, it was actually impacting my arms and my, my fingers. And the doctor uh, said, well, I, we can tell you're in a lot of pain and, um, you know, now we're, you weren't at that point, like I'm bringing this up now because it is going to be important shortly, but you weren't like exaggerating your pain. You weren't no. like out there trying to get pain meds. You were just trying to be like, Hey dude, I can't move my arms. And no. Okay. And this was in the middle of the hockey. Well, it was middle end. So we were actually making a run, you know, and trying to make a run at state again. And so, I mean, this was in, impacting everything, my sleep, my teaching, my coaching. I, you know, I could hardly hold my hockey stick or anything. And so I go in and I explain my symptoms and the doctor said, okay, you know, it's, it's obvious you're in pain. You know, we're going to get an MRI scheduled. But in the meantime, would you like some of this Percocet to help with the pain? And I was like, great. You know, I didn't know anything really about it. I just knew that it was a, it was a more extensive uh, painkiller. And, uh, the way I like to put it is like, if, 
if that doctor had said, would you like some heroin to ease your pain? I probably would have been a little more leery of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and later to find out that you know, Percocet has oxy cotton in it. And uh, that's pretty much heroin, you know. So what year was this? That was 2007. Okay. So I, you know, at first, you know, it took the pain away. I mean, it really did. I mean, I was, I was so grateful. I could do all the things I wanted to do again. What and was that? I'm sorry. I'm going to keep interrupting you because I, there's key points. And some of these, I don't know the specific answers. I'm not trying to fish for anything. I just want honesty. Um, and at some point, y'all, I will go back and explain why the years are important when it comes to the history of the opioid epidemic. But what was that first pill? Like, was the first pill, like, I've heard patients tell me, I took that first pill and it was like love at first sight. Like, was it that or not quite? Or what What would you describe it? Or do you even remember that first one? No, I remember it well. I mean, it, A, it took away the pain, but B, it made me feel great. You know, I mean, I felt this sense of euphoria. Yeah. Like, everything was so... Great. I mean, it wasn't like, like I had done hard drugs before, you know, nothing like heroin or meth, but I had done cocaine. I had done acid. I had done LSD. Um, I had done mushrooms, uh, marijuana, but this was a completely different feeling, but it felt really good. And uh, that was the danger. You know, like some people have told me they got deathly sick <laughs> taking an opiate and I, and I wish that that would happen to me. I was you know? just going to say like, you know, the last episode we talked about that brain switch, you know, and there was your brain switch, you know, now maybe all those other things had kind of led and primed that brain switch. Maybe, maybe not, probably not, probably all played in together, but you know, I've (laughs) my first time with an opioid. I'm just going to throw it at you really quickly is I had my wisdom or my, excuse me, my tonsils taken out in medical school. So I had not had a pain med until I was what? 23 ish. No, I lied. Yeah. 23 ish. And just had my tonsils out, and they gave me liquid lore tab. So we're not even talking oxycodone, which you got. We're talking hydrocodone, which is less strong, y'all. And I took the first dose, and within minutes, I was vomiting profusely and felt like death. And vomiting after getting your tonsils out is not pleasant, so I was done taking pain meds. Lucky you. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm serious. Yeah, right. no, I'd, lucky me. Um so yeah, okay, sorry. So you yeah, liked the first one. I did like the first one, and then how many were you given oh, roughly? Do you think? Uh, not that many, you know, probably twenty. Okay. You know, <laughs> the, yeah, that's what a surgery it, should give you the first prescription. I was getting close to three hundred and twenty a month towards the end, and they were high dose ones. So I mean, when I say so twenty, put into perspective. Yeah. When so, I changed the rules, yeah, it was right. down to ten yeah. if you needed it for something. Right. Like this. So, but, but anyway. at that time. It really was, I think it was pretty typical for somebody to get that for a neck pain. I oh, mean, yeah, for sure. I uh, was, I was honestly expecting you to say higher than 20. And I, and I, it could have been, it really could have been. I don't, I don't remember. Um, all I know is, is that by the time that first pill bottle was done, I really wanted more. Did you, within that first bottle, take more than it said to? Yes. Okay. Yes. And, uh, and I'm not going to say this was my first go around with opiates, I remember the first time I had a positive uh, experience with a painkiller was Tylenol 3. <laughs> uh, I was in, I don't know, it was probably like 18, 19, and I got very, very ill, um, you know, stomach flu and all that. And I was, 
And I went into the hospital, and they gave me Tylenol 3. And I remember, this is very <laughs> specific, but I remember watching the movie The Rock, an old Nicolas Cage, Sean Connery oh. film. And it's a dumb movie. I mean, sorry, Nick. But it's a, it, I, you know, I, it's one of the movies I like. But I've never liked that movie as much as I did when I watched it when I was taking Tylenol 3. Oh, my gosh. That's, like, such an analogy for every drug. Yeah. You never liked it as much as that first Time. Right. And so I don't know why I remember that so well, but that's that's really my first experience with, oh, maybe painkillers are fun. Do you think if you turn that movie on right now, you'd have a craving? No, not at all. I, I like mean, but movie. I'm just kind of like talking about triggers. Oh, we'll get no, to that, because I, I've, I've watched it plenty of times after. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just that's that's my reason I say that is because it really wasn't my first time taking them. And so I guess I wasn't that surprised when I liked the Percocet when it was given to me. Can I just give a really quick aside, like public service announcement here? Of course. You can. Number, two points. Number one, Tylenol number three should be banned and never used for anything. It has zero purpose. Number two, the part of the reason is no pregnant person and or breast breastfeeding person for sure should never take Tylenol number three because you can overdose and kill your baby. Well, that's with your certain information. With your certain genetics, it it is a real thing. So. Well, anyway, they should, they should put that on the bottom. So That's breastfeeding, sure. I don't care. Post C-section, don't think you're going to be nice and use something weak like Tylenol number three. It is horrific, can create a lot of issues in baby. Anyway, sorry. Back yes, to your neck injury. Okay, so to speed things up, you know, that neck injury kind of, it, it really progressed. And, you know, and then I, I ended up seeing a, a, a surgeon, a spine surgeon, um, who diagnosed it as a degenerative disc. Um, it was not getting any better. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend that, um, you know. At this later point, on, you might have been exaggerating maybe, it a little bit. Maybe, maybe uh, my pain tolerance had gotten had gotten messed up, but I was experiencing pain. And if you didn't have them at that point, were you starting to have some withdrawal symptoms? Yes, I just didn't know it. Okay. You know, I, I mean. I, I, okay, so I did know, I was aware that there could be some, but I, was time, I remember there was a time where I was so sick when I was teaching, and I didn't even put two and two together. I had, I had stopped taking them, I didn't even think about it, and I got so sick, and I had to take days off, because I thought I had the flu. And then I went back in to get, you know, my neck looked at it, and I got more pills, and I, and I felt great. Mm-hmm. Um, looking so back you had at the that, dependence. I did. I had the physical dependence, just as anybody would have. I mean, right. I Everybody who a, takes it long enough is going to be dependent. Right. I mean, that's a body thing. That's that's what happens in mm-hmm. your body. Um, there's a physical dependence, and I, had, I, I, yes, I had had that. And then what what it happened then is, is it just kind of progressed. I never stopped. So I, uh, in 2007, I, I continued to take them. And then by 2008, I could start, if I look back, I can start seeing uh, different changes within my demeanor with how I was working with students, with how I was working with the hockey program. Um, there was a lot more bitterness. There was a lot. M- I, I had such a good relationship with parents and with the players and with co- you know, coworkers, teachers, everybody. And I'm not saying this to brag, but everybody liked me and, and I had a really good rapport with most people I worked with by the time I got to 2008 I was not liked I didn't understand it I I, I understand I didn't understand it at all there's people that used to like me that didn't like me and I started to get like real bitter and and on the edge all the time and and I at that time I knew I was addicted okay 
Okay, um, when you say addicted, because I want to make sure we hammer home, hammer this home a little bit. Dependence is, you know, that physical, physiological. We're all going to get dependent if we take it long enough. To cross into an addiction, you need to start doing behaviors that, you know, you're using meds more than you should. You're kind of making up some fibs. You're doctor shopping. You're, you're do, you're, you're, Interactions with other people are different, which is what you kind of just described. You know, it's starting to impact your life. Right. So. And, and I was misusing. Yes. I was not crushing and snorting, but I was chewing them. Um, I had heard. But you're taking more than you're prescribed. Taking more so, than yeah. I was prescribed, yeah. And that, that's, that's the key. So you is, already had a moderate opioid use disorder just there, just so you're aware. Right. And I, and I didn't even realize it. I mean, I, I understood that what I was doing wasn't right. Mm -hmm. I just didn't understand how wrong it was. Sure. You know, and what sort of tr path I was starting to take. So how did you keep getting more and more and more? Because you had I, surgery, okay. right? No, I had surgery in 2009. Okay. So this, this went on. And, you know, it was like two years after that first injury is when... I ended up having surgery and I, they ended up fusing uh, discs in my, in my neck, removing the, or fusing the, this vertebrae. Yeah. Anyway, they, you know, so it was a two year process. And you were the on pain meds the whole time. Yes. And the way I was able to get more was to exaggerate the pain. So if you're, you know, you asked me if I, if I was in pain, so yes, I was in pain, but I exaggerated it mm -hmm. so that I increased the dose. You know, and that was one of those things that I knew I could convince the doctors that that the pain was getting worse because I got the green light. Basically, they did the MRI, they looked at it, and it showed that this should be painful. Right. And and so, did I, they I, ever try to use any other meds, like yeah. say, hey, let's try these things? Oh, of course. And I, I, I mean, I made sure that it didn't work, you know, or that I didn't. You know, it may have worked. I just didn't want it to work. Mm -hmm. I wanted the the high dose stuff, and okay. that's that's where I believe that it 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 really affected my brain then because I knew what I wanted. Right. And and I and I struggled with that at that time because I thought I was a bad person. I thought I was just manipulating and 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 I didn't understand why. But you were able to justify it in a way. No, well, to others. Okay. Well, but to others, to but myself, the self-shame. I think to myself, I knew I was doing wrong. Okay. But I didn't know how to do right. Sure. Did I thought it? I was in. I thought I was in too far, you know. And then, and then, um, you know, to fast forward the story, I ended up leaving the the school I was at. Um, you know, I had had enough success where that I could have gone other schools to get a hockey job. Other other places wanted me to mm -hmm. come there. And so towards the end of that run at the first school, I started to think about, you know, relocation was the answer. That I couldn't stop doing what I was doing unless I moved. Couldn't stop doing what you're doing in terms of? The doctor knew me too well. Gotcha. And I, and okay. I, and I knew that that doctor um, was willing to work with me. And I... I'm I'm a good manipulator. I, I'm Did they a, ever question you though? No, not I then. Like, what about if you ran out early or you needed an early refill because you're overtaking them? Or I was honest. I would tell them. I you know I 
I am not honest, honest. I didn't tell him that I was, you know, I, I just told him that I was in a lot of pain. I mean, so you it, needed to take more because you were in a lot of pain. Yeah. Gotcha. And at one point, they actually prescribed me methadone. I actually, I mean, not the, not the stuff that you think no, of. No, no, no. No, you're right. Methadone can be used as a pain medication, y'all. Yeah. It's a pill for pain. It's a liquid for opioid use disorder. Yeah. I'm laughing because it is like the most ridiculous med to ever prescribe because it's, we'll get to that methadone yeah. story at some point. But so that, it's not an easy med to prescribe. Right. And that was a tough one, you know, I mean, because I was taking methadone and Percocet at the same time. And... I didn't really get the effect of methadone that I, I mean, that wasn't doing for me what the Percocet was. So which, I remember. Which is a, why we use it to treat opioid use disorder, long yeah. acting, yada, yada. And I, I did get a couple times when I first started the methadone. I, I remember one particular time I was driving to a baseball game. Um, I was coaching baseball and I remember I was just jamming to the who Oh my uh, and just loving life, you know. I mean, I thought I had the world by the tail, and I and on that, I just I don't know why I remember that one, but I remember that one. And so, ultimately, you know, the methadone didn't work, um, but I continued to take it. I moved to a different town, and I said I wasn't going to do it, and I did it. I found another doctor that would take over what the other doctor was doing. And until, um, did you ever have a urine drug screen at any of this time? No. Okay. I'm just, I'm nope. just trying to reference. See, I think what happened was, is that I was a well-respected member of the community, mm -hmm. you know, with my work in hockey, with my work in, as a teacher, nobody questioned me. Right. You know? But I mean, in all reality, there was part of that, but part of it was just, this is normal. And in a little bit, I'll digress and go into the actual. Yeah. I, I just don't think that it was. It was well known enough at that time, you know, mm -hmm. not enough people knew about the dangers of it at that time. And so I was able to fly under the radar. So this, when you moved to the new town, was this pre-surgery or post-surgery? Pre-surgery. Okay. So we had talked about surgery, but we hadn't done anything. And then, and then 2000, um, the end of 2008 was a terrible year. Um, my ex-wife's dad died. Um, the day before the first day of school at a new town um, mm. and uh, you know, out of the blue. And it was, it was a very traumatic experience for her. And um, I was, I was very, I, I did not, I was not there for her because I was so enmeshed in my opiate addiction, which I didn't tell anybody about. And, you know, it probably appeared that I was a very, un, you know, I, I was not very empathetic towards the situation and I was, I was distant. Sure, and, sure. and so I ended up um, at that time, that's when I really ended up pursuing that doctor because at that time I was getting the, the doctor from the old town to mail me prescriptions. And that's how it, you know, I would do a check. How far away? Time. Roughly um, 50 miles, okay, 60 miles, somewhere in there. And, and so once, there was one time where the prescription didn't come in the mail and I ended up running out and I ended up calling in sick three days in a row because I was, and I, and I am finally driving down there and it had gotten, um, it hadn't gotten sent out. That's why. And so at that point I knew exactly what I was. Sure. And 
I remember at one point I had asked my father to um, find some opiates from my uncle who was taking them as prescribed, and he's you know he had a bad ankle injury, and so um, that was just I, I mean I I was manipulative, and mm-hmm. I and I got it to work out, and so I knew I was in a bad spot, but I didn't know how to address it, and uh, so the way I addressed it was I had surgery, you know. And um, I thought that was going to answer all my questions, you know, my problems. That was my first um, instance where I felt that that surgery was a wonderful thing. You know, like I got to sit in bed and I got, you know, put an IV in my arm and just pump that medicine right into me. And I was, you know, most people dread surgery. At that point, I started to like it, which sounds really weird. No, (laughs) not really, but. And so that was... At, after the surgery, then they uh, they allowed a titration period for coming off of the um, the opiates, but that was basically got me to the end of the school year. And then I remember, I mean, I had I had a young son who was who had just turned one, and uh, I ended up losing my job over it. By the way, um, they didn't renew my contract at the new school, so I went from you know a well respected teacher at the one school to try and change go to the other school. <laughs> And disaster of a year, sure. and they and then they didn't renew my contract, so well, I you got up, the emotional baggage on top. Oh of yeah, it. so mm-hmm. I got the shame, and I got I, I screwed up my whole you know life and, and everything that I had I had achieved, and and on top of that, we weren't ever be able to sell our house at the old. So we moved back, you know, without a job, you know, we just moved back. I mean, I put my wife through hell. Let's face it, right. that was the first instance of me just. And, and I, and I still, you know, I've, I've worked past that now, but we'll get to that later. But that was the first instance of me realizing that I put her through hell. And I ended up, you know, going back to that town. She's working. I'm not, I mean, obviously get paid through the summer. So instead of doing daycare, I just stayed home with my son and I went through withdrawal. That was the first time I went through withdrawal and I went through it and I got through it. I remember at the, at the end of the withdrawal, uh, my wife and I and my assistant coach and his wife from the other school, mm-hmm. we went to Vegas. That was my, that was <laughs> was my end like of my withdrawal. For, yeah. okay. Well, but I was still going through the withdrawal, but mm-hmm. I, it definitely took my mind off it. Um, I, I just, I, I got through it, but that was the first time I actually saw the devil in my presence. Was so describe, my first like, what do you mean? It was a, it was a demon like creature that was, it was in my bedroom. I mean, I was sleeping and I would, I woke up and this devil-like creature was in my bedroom laughing at me. I mean, it was as clear as day for me. It, it scared me so bad. I've never been so scared in my life. Just interesting for, it's not the first time I've heard the devil reference. Usually it's in relation to meth, but also not uncommon for opioids. But this is a common thing. For people who are trying to listen and we will explain why people go through withdrawal and go back or what opioid withdrawal is actually like. And this is just one of those instances where <laughs> it brings you right back. Yeah. Well, and so I, how long were you off? Well, that was in June of 2009. And, um, and I, and I started to get my life back. You know, I, I, it was hard to get a job. I mean, I didn't have a very good reference from that school and there's not a lot of social studies teaching jobs around, the state where I was in. And so I ended up 
you know, just kind of taking some time off and, and spending time with my son. And that whole summer was good. I, I still had the post-acute withdrawal stuff mm-hmm. all throughout that summer, though. I was never, I didn't really feel completely well. What did you, what did you feel like that post-acute withdrawal? It was. What did you feel? Exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Um, not feeling quite full, you know, like not I wasn't whole. I, there was something missing in my life. And there was like this dullness to my life. I just love that you're using all these keywords and I didn't even have to prep them. <laughs> well, like, okay. I mean, the, the, the reason why they're keywords is because you've heard them so much in your profession working with patients. Right. And that's the, the and I, and I'm not saying that I knew these. I'm just, I'm just describing them the way I felt. Did you think about the pills then? Um, like during all that time, did you did you have that awareness? Like, if I just had one. Or At first, you... I did. When I first started going that through that withdrawal, I, I I contemplated on ways I I could find them or I could get them. I never thought of getting them black market type, you know, going on the street. But I thought of ways I could get injured or stuff like that. Sure. Um, but you know, I got through it, and and that summer was good. And I I guess. I guess the one part that was really difficult is that I kept getting rejected for jobs. I really want, and, and, and that, that shame and that realization that all of this stuff wouldn't have happened had I not been on the drugs. And I never was tempted to go anywhere else, like drinking more or anything like that. That never really entered my mind. I just was depressed. Sure. And that, that I guess that's the best way to put it. The post, post-acute withdrawal stuff was a dark depression type mm-hmm. thing. And and I finally, you know, got through it. My you know, I got a job in my ex wife's town, I guess, right. close to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, since her, her dad died, it, it worked out to where she could work from home and we decided to move back to her old home, her home of growing up. And sure. and I got this job and it was great. And I felt like I was on top of the world again. And I think we should leave it at there. Okay. Okay, so can I, I I do want to go back, though, and add a little bit just to explain, or should I not? We wait. Well, no, I think if we want to go back. We can start the next episode, or do you want me to go back and explain the parallel? I think we should go back now because it, it, it really is applicable to right now. I agree. Okay. So I want to kind of, the reason I was asking some of these questions throughout, I want to kind of explain what happened because I think a lot of doctors got a bad rap for patients. I mean, Josh, you fit the classic, classic patient of this epidemic. Um, And I want to explain why this happened and why no one questioned like they do now or why we had this whole generation of people that were like this and a whole generation of doctors that were like, oh my God, you're in pain. We must give you more. Okay, so we're going to go way back. 1986 is actually when this whole thing of opioids started. Um, kind of just like, eh, we can, prior to then, in the United States, because we're not talking in there, anywhere else in the world, because anywhere else in the world, this epidemic has somehow evaded, because whatever. Um, prior to this is opioids were only used in, like, cancer pain or end-of-life things. So in 86, Dr. Portnoy, I just have to say these names because it's fun. Or a paragraph saying people should use opioids to treat things besides cancer. I was like, oh, cool. 
like a paragraph. There's no scientific study. I'm not going to read this it in the pain magazine. I'm not going to read the whole quote. A decade later. So that, that was kind of like, eh, what's going on? 19, what year was that? 1986. Okay. But that's not when really things really caught on. 1996 is when everything started to kind of crumble. American Pain Society, which had members of the American Pain Society that were like buddy buddy backdoor from Purdue Pharma. Like, even I think in Dope Sick, it says like the one guy who worked for Purdue Pharma actually went and worked at the American Pain Society and worked at whatever, whatever. So that is when this whole pain with the fifth, fifth vital sign came out. So all the things when you're in the hospital on a scale of one to 10, what does your pain look like? What smiley face is your pain at or whatever? That is not a vital sign, by the way, you know, but that is when the world started to push. This is like, oh my God, people should never be in pain. And so we must treat pain just like we treat blood pressure. Just like we treat, you know, a fever. So that's when that all really started. Ironically, that is the same year, 1996, that Purdue Pharma released OxyContin. There's nothing ironic about that, by the way. No, I was going to say that. Nothing ironic. Um, Dr. James Campbell is the source of all of this. Um, he was the president of the American Pain Society at that time, and he was the buddy-buddy in with Purdue Pharma. And he's the one that ended up working for Purdue Pharma? Mm-hmm. Which I think it might have been the other way around. I don't remember exactly. Either way, there's a connection there with this Dr. James Campbell. So OxyContin comes out. They're, you know, the Sackler family's like, hey, we need to come up with a really good way of selling this and be making it the most successful medication of all time. Da 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 da. We are going to cure the United States of pain or the world of pain. Um, and then, therefore, James Campbell, who's on the American Pain Society, says, well, in order to do that, we need to make pain something we have to treat that's where the whole vital sign thing came in definitely not true so another big moment happened two years later in 1998 is when the va so the veterans health administration the va also bought into the pain as the fifth vital sign which is a pivotal moment because when the va buys in it's kind of like when medicare decides something all the other insurance companies have no choice but to follow suit the va kind of said it, which then Jayco decided to say it too. Jayco is the mothership of anything that monitors hospital systems. So when you hear Jayco's coming into your hospital or your clinic, like nobody has water bottles around. There's no scraps of paper. There's definitely no snacks and everybody's dressed the right way. And everybody knows every single rule of your entire hospital and you must be perfect. So when it's like, Jayco... It's like OSHA for the business pretty, community. Same thing. Yes. So Jayco comes in, you're, yeah, you're, you're on your best behavior. When Jayco says you now must treat pain, you have no choice. And that is when the little smiley faces came out. And stay tuned for one more slide. Um, around the same time, so now we're coming into the late 90s, and Purdue Pharma's like part of their... Uh, marketing campaign with this whole, you know, OxyContin is, okay, well, we do have a whole world of smart doctors who are like, I don't know, this sounds too good to be true. You know, we have morphine, morphine works well, whatever. Why are we going to now start using this new med when morphine works just fine? And so they had to come up with all these studies that basically said, no, but OxyContin is different. It has this different time release formulation and it has this different formulation and because of the formulation, you cannot become addicted to it. 
less than 1%. Exactly, less than 1%, um, which came out of this amazing thing by Porter and Jick, which was actually not even a research study. It was a letter to the editor in a medical magazine where they said, hey, by the way, less than 1% of people are going to become addicted to these pain meds. And the reason they said that is because they did all these burn studies and the people only got their pain meds when they got like their burns debrided, nasty, but they didn't go home with them. They got them just for that procedure. And so Purdue Pharma chose these two studies, two studies, only two. (laughs) One was actually from 1982 and one was from 1980. So these were old studies that they dug out of the archives and they decided to say, hey, look, these two studies which they exaggerated into multiple studies, show only less than 1% become addicted. And so doctors were like, sweet, somehow tied that to OxyContin, even though OxyContin didn't exist when these two studies came out. I mean, these people were brilliantly, horribly manipulative monsters. And so anyway, that's how they got this pushed. Meanwhile, there were actually a ton of other studies from the 90s, so much newer studies that showed that anywhere between 3 and 43% of people can become addicted. Much more realistic. That wasn't very well spread in the news, though. No. I mean, that was not very well shared amongst the medical community either. No, and you know, and, and you can give doctors a rap and say, hey, I mean, you should have done your research. Well, less than 1% sounds way too good to be true, doctor. Okay, well... The reality is, is the first doctors that these, you know, um, drug reps went to were the ones who were primary care doctors, family docs, in rural communities, in areas where there's a lot of pain. Like, let's talk about Appalachia and all the mines. So there's a lot of pain. These are doctors that are way overworked, seeing way too many patients. And you have a drug rep handing you a research article. Like, sweet research article. I am a family doctor in a rural Minnesota town. Well, I don't do that anymore, but I did. I don't read every journal article. Why? I don't have time for that. Like, you can't just read every article on pain because you also need to know blood pressure and diabetes and this and this and this and this. So if someone's handing you an article, you're like, oh, sweet. So could the medical community, like, take some ownership in this? Yes. Somebody at the American Medical Association maybe should have done the research for the doctor saying, hey, be careful. But that's not what happened. So... Now we're almost getting to this point of 1998 back when, you know, Jayco decided to care um, and make it everything impossible and say you have to assess this as a vital sign. And basically they said, hey, doctors, you're going to treat pain. If someone's in pain, you give them more pain meds. If they're still in pain, you give them more pain meds. And if you give them too many and they become addicted, guess what? You cannot be sued. You cannot be held responsible. So basically, they were given their green light to treat patients' pain because patients had pain. And so they didn't feel, they were basically told, doctors at the time, that you will not face regulatory action if you give pain meds. So 2001, now we're jumping a couple more years, that's when it actually was a mandate that the hospitals had to ask about the pain score, which was quickly followed by, Oh, by the way, if you don't treat patients' pain, now you can be punished. So, first of all, you have to treat it. You're not going to get in trouble for treating it. Now, if you don't treat it, you You can can actually get in trouble. trouble. Doctors were faced in front of their state boards. A patient wouldn't get their pain meds. A patient 
came in saying my pain is worse and they weren't given higher doses, patients would turn doctors into the board. Doctors would have to go face the board for not treating a patient's pain. Plus, when Jayco gets involved and Jayco says you have to ask these questions and you know when you get the surveys when you leave the hospital and how well, how nice was your nurse? How, you know, how good was the food? How good was this process of, you know, released from the hospital. One of the questions that got put on there was how well was your pain control during this day? If hospitals didn't get a good score, they didn't get paid as much. So you can just see this was a whole perfect storm. And I mean, this we're in Minnesota. I'm just going to, I mean, the state of Minnesota, the Minnesota Board of Medical Practice in 2007, ironic timing here, November of 2007, and I'm going to give this, I'm going to quote this statement, quote, untreated pain or undertreated pain is as serious a departure from the standard of care and as serious a violation of the Minnesota Medical Practice Act as is excessive prescribing of controlled substances or prescribing of controlled substance for non-therapeutic purposes. So basically, like, this is a huge violation. You have to treat pain. So 2007, again, perfect timing and to reiterate this is i'm not the only person i mean i can't i don't even know the numbers but i'm sure it's millions of people went through the similar thing i went to i went through and and i'm using my story as a frame of reference for the listeners and i think it's important to continue and we will in the next episode to continue to see how this progression happened. Yes. Because this was like the minimal part, you know, like <laughs> when you hear the way the rest of this story goes, you're going to see it escalate very, very quickly. Yes. And that's the part that I think is going to be more eye-opening to the to the public. And and that, you know, and, and I don't like sharing the story particularly because it is very personally hurtful. I have to relive what happened in my life. Right. But I feel it is so important just as we go back to the beginning of this podcast, why are we doing it is to help. I am very willing to go through the, all this past, which isn't comfortable because I know it will help. Right. So I want to just end with the numbers. Again, just because your story fits so perfectly, clearly, we just talked about 2007. Roughly 38,000 people died of opioid overdose deaths in 2007, which was pretty stable um, for the la- you know the, the years leading up to that. In 2009, so when you had your surgery, we were only at about 40,000. We're going to leave it there, and then we'll tell the rest of the story coming up. I think this is going to help people. Mm-hmm. I think that it's important. So... Um, I do look forward to telling the rest of my opiate story and and, and seeing if we can figure out more statistics that will explain why it happened. Exactly. All right. With that, I think we should say goodbye. All right. (laughs) Sorry. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. And remember to tell your friends because this is, uh, we really hope that this takes off because we think it's going to help a ton of people. If 